Well, good morning. Wow, participatory. We're off to a good start. Appreciate that. Uh, my name, as you heard Pastor Chris say, is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors at Fellowship Church. So honored to be with you today. Uh, what you might not know is uh, the ventured Oak Ridge isn't so foreign to me as I grew up just down the street in the metropolis of Oliver Springs. So if there's anybody from the land of Oz, we uh, have a kindred beginning. Uh, uh, speaking of growing up, when I was growing up uh, in the days of my youth, middle school, high school, there was a television program uh, called Behind the Music. And this particular program every week would highlight a, a particular artist, a music band, a, a celebrity, and tell a bit of their story, but would introduce a song that might be popular in culture and, and tell the story behind the song. Uh, oftentimes, the songs we sing are birthed out of inspiration, and this particular program would highlight those stories. They would wrap these famous musicians and artists in a bit of uh, humanity, and all of a sudden, once you understood uh, what was going on behind the story, the, the, behind the song, the song itself became that much more significant, that much more beautiful and extraordinary and as you know the bible has its own song book if you will a matter of fact you've even heard some of those songs today we call it the book of psalms it's a collection of poetry and songs uh, oftentimes written uh, by an author many of them of course by david some of them by moses and solomon and others but what, what sometimes we miss when we read through the Psalms is we, we kind of skip through the title. Uh, oftentimes many of the songs have a title, or many of these Psalms, many of these poems have a bit of a backstory. And when you see the backstory, uh, it makes the song all that more colorful, all that more meaningful. And today we're going to take a look at one of the most famous songs in the book of Psalms. Uh, but also one of the most famous psalms really in all of history. But before we do that, I want to borrow your imagination just for a moment. I want you to think back to a time, uh, maybe many years ago, maybe recently, when you got an opportunity to see a, a really extraordinary piece of artwork. Or maybe just you got to see something that was uh, a, a piece of architecture or a building. Or maybe you went to a concert and you, you heard music that was really amazing uh earlier this summer my wife and i our our church we have sent out a couple of missionaries and they're in london and uh, my wife and i we made the trip to london and spent a week with them got a chance to observe their ministry but for me it was my first time in london uh, to spend a week and we wanted to take a couple of days and see all the things british all right so you know i'm an american and we're probably a little arrogant and cocky when it comes to our british counterparts but one of the beautiful things about London is you go there and you see, uh, uh, you, you were reminded of what a little baby uh, the United States of America is. I mean, we don't have that much history. We're just like this little blip on the historical radar. But you go to London and uh, there's all of these buildings and neighborhoods that are a thousand years old. And my wife and I, we got to uh, take in a couple of uh, a really special experiences. One, we went to the British Library, which houses... Uh, probably the most, uh, has the largest collection of historical documents uh, in the world. We saw original handwritten scores of music, for those of you on the worship team, this might interest you, of, uh, from Bach and Beethoven and others. Uh, we saw handwritten uh, architectural and uh, um, inventive drawings 
from Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, we got the Magna Carta is there. I mean, you're talking about a 13th century document that really reshaped history that inspired our own constitution. And I'm standing 12 inches away from the Magna Carta of this document that said men and women everywhere deserve an equal opportunity for justice and equality. Uh, and then for the, the pastor in me, the Bible geek in me, I, I got to go and they have the oldest copy of, of a complete Greek New Testament there in the British Library. It was amazing. Then we went from the library to the National Art Gallery, and we saw uh, original works from Monet and, Ren and Renoir and Van Gogh and all of these famous artists, and it was really amazing. And one of the things that it, it occurred to me as I was looking at these pieces of art, looking at this museum, was how many people... The, the throngs of people, may, maybe millions of people have been here before and they've observed this artwork or they've, they've listened to this music. Uh, and, and, they've, and, and so many people have written about it and there's, there's documentaries and movies. And, and you can, if you just Google any of these pieces, you'll get article after article after article talking about the significance of these documents, the significance of this artwork, the, uh, the glories of it. And one of the things that it occurred to me as I was watching that, as I was looking at the artwork, as I was looking at these museum pieces, as someone who's not an expert in any of this, it, it occurred to me how foolish it would be for me to try to say something original about them, for me to try to sound smart and talk about them. Now, the best thing to do when you go there and you look at that artwork or you see these incredible pieces of music is to just take it in. It's to just be reminded and be thankful for uh, a creative God who would make such creative people that would create such artwork. And uh, today, uh, we're going to do something similar. We're going to look at the 23rd Psalm. If you've been to church, you grew up in Sunday school, you're familiar with this psalm. And so for me to try to unpack the 23rd Psalm and impress you with some new angle or to try to say something new about it would really be silly. It would really be foolish. But I think today uh, we can take a fresh look at something that you're, you're probably familiar with. Even if, if someone didn't grow up in church, even if they have very limited understanding of Christian life, they've probably heard this song. Uh, if you grow up in the South around here, it was probably printed on, uh, you know, a, it's in a picture frame over your dining room table, it's in a bathroom, it's somewhere. You're familiar with this song. But before we jump into it, as I was preparing for this message, I came across something that I did think that was, was pretty unique. Uh, David Paulson is a counselor, he's a therapist, he's also a Christian author. Uh, he wrote an inverse of the 23rd Psalm. Uh, uh, for those of you who remember the days when you actually had real film in your camera and you had to take it to get it developed, he wrote a photographic negative of the 23rd Psalm. So if you could imagine what the exact opposite of Psalm 23 is. It's what I'm going to read to you in just a moment. And the reason that I, I, I want to point this out is because we're living in a day and time. If you, if you pay attention to what's going on in culture, if you pay attention to what's going on in the news, uh, you will see story after story of, of anguish and struggle and darkness and depression in our society. Matter of fact, I spend a lot of time with uh, young adults and young families and uh, we have a, a group of middle school and high school students in our nation right now, in your own community, who maybe uh, in unprecedented ways are experiencing anxiety and stress and darkness. Uh, recently, in the last several months, 
uh, we've seen several high-profile uh, celebrity suicides where people have taken their own life. Uh, where I serve up in Knoxville, we've had we had four or five students in the system, school systems last year, uh, in, in just sad and tragic ways in their lives so soon. And so when I read what I'm about to read to you now, this inverse, this photographic negative of Psalm 23, it sounded like the the cry and the distress of a lot of people that I that I meet with and that I I see. So listen to this. Um, relevant uh, description of what the opposite of Psalm 23 would be. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't feel myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility. Shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really my friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me sometimes that it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full. I'm constantly left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I ever be alone? Will I be alone forever? Homeless, free-falling into the void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's living death, and then I die. That's pretty depressing and empty, isn't it? That's exactly what life disconnected from a creator God is like. It's just merely that. It's life, and it's pointless. And every hardship that we face, every difficulty that we face, seems to have no purpose, and every joy and success and victory seems to be short-lived. And that's why... Despite the fact that this psalm, this 23rd psalm, is 3,000 years old, it still reverberates into the hearts of human beings whose souls, in their soul, are longing and looking for something that's bigger than themselves. Who desperately want to avoid loneliness, who want meaningful relationship in life. And therefore, when you read these words, Psalm 23, the very first words, the Lord is my shepherd. It's almost like a soothing balm on, a, on the soul. Now, now, one thing I want you to consider this morning as you think about the 23rd Psalm, it, it's a psalm in this collection of psalms. And so if you're reading through the psalms, the first 22, when you come to 23, to hear that the Lord is your shepherd is really a break with the rhythm that's been happening. 
For the first 22 Psalms, God has exclusively been described in magnificent but distant terms. He's been described as creator, as rock, as defender, as judge, and as king. But here, David writes, and he takes God from this super extraordinary, magnificent, but distant in the terms that he describes him and brings it to a much more personal an intimate expression, the Lord is my shepherd. In ancient times, a king would often be referred to as a shepherd because of his responsibility to care for and protect his people. But David in this psalm points out that Yahweh, the creator God, isn't just any shepherd. He's a perfect and glorious shepherd. And so in this psalm, in extraordinary ways, David paints God as a shepherd and what he's like as his shepherd. So now, I know that that many of us, if you've you've got some Bible knowledge, you understand, you hear the phrase shepherd, sheep, those are familiar metaphors. But uh, for for the vast majority of us, we haven't grown up in an agrarian society. Uh, We haven't tended the sheep. And so some of the metaphors and some of the nuance, some of the color, if you will, of this psalm gets lost because we just, we're, we're not ancient Eastern people and life as a shepherd is a little bit foreign to us. So one of the things that is my goal this morning is for us to take just a, a kind of look behind the scenes and to look at this psalm from the point of view of a shepherd uh, like David to go behind the music, so to speak. And I want you to see three things. There's a lot to say, a lot that can be seen. But this morning, just briefly, three things that we see in the 23rd Psalm, three things that we see in this metaphor, God is a shepherd. We see God as both provider, protector, and friend. So first of all, back to that opening stanza. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is provider. I think this is really important, how David begins this psalm. David doesn't say this. David doesn't say, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, He gives me a green pasture, and he gives me still waters, and he anoints my head, and he provides food with me. Therefore, I shall not want. Now, David's first refrain is, the Lord is my shepherd. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I'm not in want. I have everything I need. In other words, because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. David understands that if he has everything, but the Lord isn't his shepherd, then he has nothing. But David understands materially if he has nothing, but God is his shepherd, then he has everything. This is what uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church in Philippi, was trying to say when he wrote, that famous verse that almost every Christian, particularly athletic Christians know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who participate with me. Help me, what's the verse say? Strength is me. See, we all know the verse. Uh, it's every uh, guy who's trying to get a girl to go on a date with him's favorite verse. I can do this. It's you're facing a test. I can do this. It's a, the athlete's trying to bench press or run a sprint. I can do this. Of course, if we know what the verse is about, it has nothing to do with any of those things. Paul is writing to a group of Christians and he's writing from prison. He's had every earthly possession stripped from him. He's had his Roman citizenship abused. 
people have turned his back on him and abandoned him and he writes to these Christians and he says to them, I know what it's like to be affluent and have a lot. I also know what it's like to have everything taken away from me and I have learned to be content, to be satisfied. I have learned the secret of being whole is not all of those things, whether I have them or not. It's Jesus. What Paul was saying to those Christians who are beginning to suffer and feel persecution was, listen, they can take everything from you. They can take your home. You can lose your job. Your health can suffer. But as long as you have Jesus, you have everything. That's what David is saying here when he says, the Lord, God, he's my shepherd. Because he's my shepherd, I have everything I need. Now, you may not have the job you want, the relationship you want, the health you want, but if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Yet God, in his graciousness, gives us more than just what we need. The Lord is my shepherd, verse 2. <clears throat> he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. If you're a sheep, you love green pastures. Green pastures mean food. It means refreshment. You know what else it means? It means rest. Uh, if you were reading this out of the NIV translation, it, it might be even more helpful. It says, uh, the Lord allows me to lie down in green pastures. It's not coercive. It's not forced. Uh, here's the picture that David is painting. Like a, like a good parent. When it's time for his little, their little kid's bedtime, they go to their bedroom, and they pull the covers back, and they put their kid in bed, and they kiss them on the forehead, and they tuck them in, and they wrap them close, and they assure them that uh, anything that goes wrong, dad and mom's there, you don't have to worry about the boogeyman under the bed, here's your stuffed animal, and they do everything they can to make that child feel safety and peace and serenity. What David's saying is, is in the midst of a life that can be really hard, in the midst of a life that can give you a lot of anxiety and restlessness and weariness, the Lord is a shepherd that leads his sheep to a pasture where they can lie down and lay down all the anxieties of life and lay down the wearinesses of, of life and rest. And not just physically, but where their soul, their mind can find peace and rest. Do you, have, do you have a favorite spot at your house? Do you have like that favorite lazy boy? Do you have that maybe favorite spot on your deck or on your porch where that's your happy spot? Maybe you go there and you enjoy your coffee or your tea or whatever it is. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a spot next to a park, a park bench. Maybe it's a, a place up in the Smokies at Cades Cove or whatever it might be. That place where you go and you sit and finally you get a moment to kind of let all the noise of life to drown out and you kind of get to just take a deep breath. That's what David is saying, that God provides for his children. He provides them a rest. But it's a rest that's even better than that favorite spot, that favorite oasis of yours. It's a rest that goes deep into the soul. He provides them green pastures, but he also leads them by still waters. Now, as you may know, uh, the metaphor uh, for sheep in the Scripture is often used because sheep are naive, foolish, let's just be honest, dumb. 
And that is the metaphor that God most uses to refer to us. So let that humble you today. Uh, most of us that are honest would probably say, guilt is charged. Had a lot of moments in life where I've been naive, I've been foolish. And when the scripture says that he, a shepherd leads them by still waters, this is important because sheep were so foolish, they lack depth perception, they certainly lack wisdom. If a shepherd were to lead sheep to a, a, a part of a river where the rapids are flowing, where the, where, where the water current is fast, sheep would see the water and they would all bunch up and they would run up to it in the first three or four sheep. They would try to maybe uh, stick their mouth into the water and the rest of the sheep would come by and knock them in and they would end up uh, upside down, soaked in their, in their, wool, uh, in their wool coat, which is going to weigh them down and next thing you know they're going to be going through the river. It would be very dangerous because sheep are foolish. So here's what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd knows what's best for his sheep even more than the sheep know what's best for them. And the shepherd finds a spot in the river. He finds a place in the creek where the water is still and where the risk is minimal. And he leads the sheep to get their water there. Like a good parent again, who oftentimes, I've got four young children under the age of 10 and under, and uh, my children often think I'm withholding good for them and I'm actually doing something good for them. You know, when my three-year-old wants to stick a, a metal object into an electric outlet and I get aggressive with him and I scorn him and I say, Simon, no, you can't do that. And I make a big deal about it. He thinks, I know what's going on in his mind. He wouldn't articulate it this way, but he'd be like, Dad, what's the big deal? But you know, right? You know that what his three-year-old mind doesn't know, that I'm actually trying to protect him, that I'm actually looking out for his good. He just thinks that I'm angry at him. And we're oftentimes like young children more than we realize. God knows the future when we don't. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And oftentimes things come in life and we might not get our way. We might not understand this, but a good shepherd's leading us to good still waters because he knows what's best for us. He oftentimes will help us avoid rocky rapids because they're dangerous. A good shepherd leads you to still waters because he wants to provide you a safe place to drink. He wants what's good for you. But a good shepherd's also about restoring. And you might wonder, well, how does restoration of sheep play into here? If you grew up on a farm, I kind of did, out in Oliver Springs, you might be familiar with the, the phrase cast sheep or a cast cow. Um, you see, sheep are, you know, not only are they a bit naive, not only a bit foolish, uh, but they physically are, are limited. They have a wonky sense of gravity and center gravity. And with their big coat, if, if a sheep's walking around in the pasture and maybe there's a big tree root or a, a hole or rock and the tree, a, a, a sheep would trip and fall, the sheep will also, oftentimes because of its center of gravity, go legs up in the air. That's what you call a cast sheep. Now, you and I think, okay, when the sheep rolls over, he falls, his legs are up in the air, he just needs to roll over, except that the sheep can't. When the sheep stump, stumbles and falls, because of its weird sense of gravity or lack of a good center of gravity, it can't correct itself. And, it's, and you, you can actually go YouTube some videos. Some of you got, yeah, young folks that want to see some funny videos of cash sheep. But you know, here's the thing about a cash sheep. A cash sheep can't help itself. If the sheep 
sits there upside down long enough, blood's going to rush to its head. It's going to suffocate. Eventually, the sheep will die. That's why sheep need a shepherd. There is no such thing as a wild sheep that takes care of itself in the wild. The sheep need a shepherd. So when the sheep has stumbled and it's fallen and it's upside down and without any help, it's going to be in danger. The shepherd will come along, nudge the sheep over, pick the sheep up, set the sheep back upright. I don't know about you, but there have been a lot of times in my life where I've stumbled. I've tripped. I've fallen. I've blown it. I've made some mistakes. And I've needed the restoring hand of a good shepherd to set me back upright. That's the kind of shepherd that David is pointing for us. One that restores us, who provides for us. But he also describes the shepherd, this good shepherd, as one who protects us and looks out for us. Uh, here's what verse 3 and 4 say. He, the good shepherd, leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, this, this phrase, right paths, has a couple of uh, ideas here in the scripture. In the sticking with the shepherd metaphor, it means that a good shepherd knows where to lead its sheep. The sheep don't know where to go. They don't know where the good water is. They don't know where the good pasture is. They don't know where there might be a lurking enemy. They don't know where a cliff might be. And a good shepherd leads them in a path that is for their good, that is for their flourishing, that will protect them, that will keep them out of the way of danger. But also this idea, this right path in the in the broad spectrum of the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and so forth, is referring to the fact that the good shepherd leads his sheep to a path of righteousness and life. Here's some good news about our shepherd. If we're willing to walk in humility, if we'll be willing to walk open-handed and surrendered, he'll lead us in right paths. So David wrote this psalm. His, song, his son wrote several of the Proverbs. And here's what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Again, probably familiar if you grew up in the South. This is probably on some placard in your house. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight, He'll make right your path. He protects us from outside attacks. He protects us from evil, but He also protects us from ourselves. And He says, if you'll surrender to Me, if you'll not trust yourself, if you'll trust My wisdom, if you'll trust My discernment, I'll lead you in a path that's good. And I'll lead, I'll be with you. I'll do it with you. A shepherd would use his rod and his staff for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason would oftentimes be discipline. So these naive, foolish sheep who oftentimes were clumsy could also be stubborn. Are you seeing a theme that, that connects with humanity? We're foolish sometimes, we're stubborn sometimes, and uh, sheep would uh, occasionally uh, have a tendency to wonder. Maybe a, a wonder outside of the flock, maybe a tendency to wonder near a cliff. And a good shepherd would do something that seems so violent and heinous to us. He would take the rod and he would strike the leg of that sheep. It'd bring great pain to that sheep, maybe even fracturing the leg, where the sheep would be forced to stay next to the shepherd. 
Eventually, that sheep would heal up, and instead of wandering, that particular sheep would stay closest to the shepherd wherever he went. And while we might look at that and say, man, that's harsh, what's more harsh would be a shepherd that would say, you know what? Go chase after the wolf. Go walk next to the cliff. Risk your life. You know, a good shepherd disciplines his sheep. But it wasn't just for discipline. It was oftentimes for rescue. Sometimes they would be out in the pasture and the sheep would stumble, would trip, would maybe fall into a, uh, in, into a cliff or some sort of area where it would be dangerous and the shepherd would need to use that staff with that curved head that would fit right under the neck of a sheep and be able to pull that sheep to safety because a good shepherd not only disciplines, but he rescues and protects the sheep. And at the end of the day, a good shepherd would gather the flock together He'd bring them into the pen or wherever they might be and he would use that rod and one by one he would count the sheep as they would come in. Every night the, sheep, the shepherd would count every single sheep to make sure every single sheep made it home because every sheep mattered to the shepherd and he would make sure everyone was into the fold that no one was missing. And how good is it to know that your shepherd is counting you. He's paying attention to you. He's making sure that you make it in he's a good shepherd protects but finally David makes one more claim about this shepherd and he describes to us a shepherd who's a friend Uh, verse 5 and 6 the last part of the 23rd psalm you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies you anoint my head with oil my cup overflows Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now something interesting happens here in these last couple stanzas. David actually abandons the shepherd metaphor. Because the shepherd loves his sheep, right? He cares for his sheep. He's willing to lay down his life for sheep. But a shepherd doesn't invite sheep over for dinner. That would be weird. But a shepherd does invite friends over for dinner. So I want you to I want you to use your imagination with me one more time with me, okay? I want you to imagine, think back in life, and it might be right now where you're at in life. It might be uh, another point in time where you are going through one of the most difficult, hardest challenges, trials you've ever faced. Maybe it was because of a circumstance that was beyond your control. Maybe it was a result of your own bad decisions, whatever that is. I want you to go back and think to a time where you uh, felt alone, where you felt helpless, where you felt like everything was caving in, that nothing was going right, and you just were struggling. Have you got that? Can you imagine that time? Now I want you to imagine that moment where you're, you're, you're just discouraged, you feel alone, and all of a sudden you hear the phone ring. Now, I know the natural instinct is when you're feeling that way, you don't want to answer the phone. But there's something about us these days with our cell phones. When we hear the phone ring or when it beeps, we've got to look to see who's calling. And so even though you don't want to answer it, you look to see who's calling, but you don't recognize the number. And even though you know better, you go ahead and answer the phone. And on the other end of the line is your Heavenly Father. And you hear His voice. And he says to you, in your lowest and worst moment, I prepared dinner, and I want you to come over and eat with me. Now, if we're being really honest about how we were in that moment, 
I don't know about you, but here's how I tend to react when, I, when, I, when, when um, God begins to stir in me and draw me. I begin to explain to God all the reasons I shouldn't come to dinner. You know, God, I don't know if you've heard or not, but I've got this thing that I'm going through. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm inviting you over to dinner. Lord, I don't think you understand. I'm really a mess. I know. I want you to come to dinner. But I want you to pay close attention to David's words here. David says that the Lord has prepared a table for him. He's prepared a feast for him in the presence of his enemies. I know some of us, we might walk into the, to the, to the room this morning and we feel unworthy or we feel discouraged or we feel like life's dealt us a bad hand. But most of us are JV compared to what David's had to go through. Think about David's childhood for a second, right? King Saul, uh, who God anointed as king, has walked away from being faithful to God. God's ready to anoint a new king. And so he sends the prophet Samuel to Jesse, David's father. And uh, Jesse's job is to gather his sons because one of his sons is going to be the next king. And David is left to tend the sheep while his dad gathers his older brothers. Now, now let's just be honest. How are you going to feel like if you're David when you, feel, when you realize that the prophet in Israel, one of the most esteemed men in all of the land, this respected man has come because one of Jesse's sons is going to be king, but your daddy don't even think there's any chance that it's going to be you. I mean, that might create some domestic issues between you and your father. Yet you're faithful. When time comes and your brothers are at war, your dad sends you and you go and you see the battle uh, and you see all that's going on and you see this Goliath, this Philistine warrior who's trashing your God and you rise up with courage and say, guys, we've got to do something. We can't let this guy talk about our God that way. And you save the day, right? You kill the giant. You send the Philistines running. And just when you become Israel's Savior, all the women in the streets begin to sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And now the guy who you saved becomes jealous of you. And you spend the next season of your life cave to cave, hiding for your life. But you're faithful. You're, you're, you're following after God. God deals with Saul, your king. And for a stretch, it is good. Because of your faithfulness, every time you go into victory against an enemy that's trying to oppress you, God gives you the victory. And eventually things get so cushy that you decide to stay home from war. And when you kind of got a little bit lax, when, when the king was supposed to be at battle and he stayed at home, you know the story. David goes out and he sees Bathsheba and something happens in his heart. And he commits adultery. Let's, be, let's really be fair about what happened. It, it was more like rape than adultery. Then you have the guy, the, the woman's husband murdered. I mean, not only have you been through a lot of stuff, but now you are the cause for a lot of your own anger, not a lot of your own pain. I mean, this guy has reached serious heights of conspiracy and sin. It, it unravels his family. And when you read the end of David's life, 
His son has proclaimed himself king. He's rallied an army and he's ready to go to war with his father. And all of a sudden, you've repeated a cycle. Whatever issues you have with your father, now you've got with your son. David is a man who knows something about having enemies. And he describes this shepherd God as one that would invite him to eat in the presence of his enemies. So here's where I think that can help us today. Some of us feel unworthy. Some of us feel like, I don't understand God, why why have you invited me to the table? Some of us are constantly struggling with sin and these little recurring issues of sin and unfaithfulness come up in our lives and the enemy begins to cast judgment on us. The enemy begins to speak all this condemnation in our life and every now and then we need to pull out the 23rd Psalm and remind the enemy that the shepherd God invited us to dinner and he can just watch. Like that's the kind of graceful, merciful shepherd, one that would invite us to dinner to rejoice. The scripture says to anoint our heads with oil. We don't do a whole lot of that these days. Uh, Ironically, I did this morning, a group of us and our elders, we met early this morning with a a lady in our church who's going through some serious chronic illness. We anointed her head with oil as a symbol of healing, but also in, in ancient times, it was a symbol of blessing. So it would be really odd if you invited your friends over to watch a football game this fall and put oil on their head. But in this context, it would be a blessing. It would be like saying, you're welcome here. You're a friend. You're an insider. You know, get whatever you want out of the fridge. The pantry is accessible to you. You are blessed and you're here. That's the attitude that David is describing as shepherd. If not only the shepherd God has not just reluctantly invited us to dinner, but he's invited us over and he said, you're blessed. You're welcome here. So, of course, when all of this happens, David says, my cup overflows. My cup overflows. You get to the New Testament. It's no surprise that Jesus is often described like a shepherd who knows his sheep, who's willing to lay his life down for his sheep, who protects his sheep, who's eventually referred to derisively but it becomes a badge of honor jesus the friend of sinners so whatever you need today your shepherd the lord jesus christ is the answer whatever you fear today your shepherd the lord jesus christ is the answer if you're lonely and you need a friend You have already sang the old hymn, What a Friend You Have in Jesus. He's invited you to dinner. And just in case there's any question, just in case if you wonder, does it apply to me? Let's reflect on the one phrase that we haven't talked about, and it's found in verse number 4. In verse number 4, David says, The Lord is a shepherd God who provides him with green pastures and still waters and anoints his head and invites him to dinner and provides him everything he needs for his namesake. See, here's the truth that I hope will humble us and encourage us this morning. The shepherd has not done all of this because we were cute sheep with a lot of potential. 
we're not nearly as awesome as we think we are. The shepherd has done all of this for his namesake, for his glory. He desires you and I to be a trophy of his grace for the praise of his renown, for his magnificent glory. And here's why that's good news. If our invitation to the shepherd's table is based on our worthiness, our potential, how well we're doing as sheep, we will always be anxious about that invitation. But the good shepherd says, your invitation to the table, the offer of the good news of the gospel isn't contingent on your worthiness or your potential and how well you're doing as a sheep. It's founded, it's motivation. All the chips go into the table and it's banked on the name and glory and renown of Jesus. The glory of God is that which fuels this kind of love. God doesn't just love for love's sake. God loves for His glory's sake. And the one attribute about God that is ultimate, that is something that we can't even relate to as human, is His absolute glory. The Scripture says it's unchanging, it's fixed forever, which means how He feels about you will not ebb and flow based on how well you do as a sheep. It is fixed and solid based on who He is as a shepherd. And that's good news. That's good news. That's good gospel. Let me pray for us today. Father, our shepherd, you are a good shepherd who cares for his sheep, who protects his sheep, who lovingly disciplines his sheep, who treats us as friends. And for that, we are so grateful and honored. Thank you, Jesus for being the kind of shepherd who was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Even though you were spotless and clean and had no fault, you, Lamb of God, were willing to become sin for us so that we could experience your righteousness, so that we could get the invitation to the table. We thank you, Jesus, our shepherd. In your name we pray. Amen.